0: You seem like a really affable, chill guy who I would love to have a beer with. And I, I'd imagine that for the acquire, you described them. You were anticipating this sort of very intense yeah. negotiation, and, and in your own admission, it was like, yeah, it was pretty good. Like they, they were they were good people, and they they made it easy and comfortable. Whatever. I guess the where I'm going with this question is, how do you say no? How did you say no? That's not enough. Without coming off like a prick.
1: Yeah, really good question. I, do you know what I think? Just being honest, because I think what I what I'd said from day one was like, if you ask me a question, I'll give you an honest answer. Um, and so then when they when they said like, is this in the is this in the ballpark? Sorry, no, it's not. Um, it was, you know, like, and being as there's no point. Those negotiations are going to be tough. Don't matter what level, whether you're negotiating a thousand pound or five hundred million pounds, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you've still got to be direct about it. And if they're not going to meet that valuation you've got in your mind, you're going to have to walk away. Now, don't get me wrong. Me and my wife had some pretty scary conversations of like, yeah, if you say no to that, (laughs) and then they walk away, you're, you're you're effectively gambling a figure there that you might never get offered again. But but then if that figure is low enough that you think well it don't matter because i am pretty confident give me a year i'm going to be turning over x y and z and working towards this goal then then i think that that was i was in quite a lucky position i think i was relatively empowered by the fact i hadn't gone looking for the sale because in my mind if they had never come along i'd still been happily build, building my business so in my mind i was like it needs to be a good enough offer for me to get out. Welcome back to another edition
0: of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm John Warlow, your host. And today on the show, we're gonna hear from Eddie Whittingham who sold the defense works for, get this, fully 10 times revenue four years after starting the company. That's a fast return on investment. It's going to be a fun show. I think you're going to like it. Before we get there, though, just a couple of announcements. Specifically, we've made a new plan and effort to make our show notes much more comprehensive. We're going to give you links to things we talk about in each episode, along with definitions of some of the MA lingo that you may not have heard before and you need uh, to kind of be decoded. So that's all going to be available to you on the episode page. So if you go to builttocell.com, you'll find the latest episode and the episode page right there when you click the radio. Button. So have a look at the new show notes. Uh, let us know what you think. And um, and I think they'll be helpful for you as you try to decipher some of the lingo and uh, tactical things we talk about in our conversation with Eddie. All right, let's get into Eddie because he built the Defense Works again to a 10 times revenue acquisition just four years after starting the business. Well, how do you do it? What are you going to learn? You're gonna specifically learn about his techniques for cutting churn. He had churned down to less than 2% annually. So he shares some specific things you can do to lower your churn if you have a subscription business. Also, how he uniquely leveraged accelerators to get some of the key questions he had around his business model answered. He talks about how he slashed costs for developing his subscription business. I love his comments about how to get on the radar of an acquirer without necessarily saying you're for sale. And undermining and negotiating leverage. So listen for that section. I think there's some real wisdom in there. He talks about how to convince your customers to write a review for your business. How to protect your secrets while being wooed by an acquirer. How to explain a visit from a potential acquirer to your employees, which is always one of those delicate uh, things that you've got to stick handle around. He talks about how to push an acquirer to increase their offer. Without sounding like a jerk, and I loved his comments around this point, and finally, how to protect your downside when accepting equity as a currency when selling your business. Here to tell you the entire story is Eddie Whittingham. Eddie Whittingham, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I usually hate the protracted like bio read of the guests, but in your case, I think it's really cool how you came to Defense Works because you weren't some tech founder who's on his fourth startup. You were a cop at the age of 18. That blows my mind. Tell us like how you got in a short succinct way, how you got to the Defense Works.
1: Yeah. Short story being I joined the police at 18 relatively naively um, enjoyed it on the whole, but for probably obvious reasons, you can probably imagine why I didn't also enjoy it. Um, was was in the police for a number of years and then decided I didn't want to do that forever. So I uh, started studying law. I studied law full-time while I was still working in the police. I dropped my hours to 30 hours a week. So it was a pretty, pretty intense period of my life. Um, studied law, qualified... Um, and then became a solicitor, so a lawyer uh, in the UK. Joined a decent law firm, one of the international law firms based in uh, Manchester in the UK, and realised as soon as I sat down at that new job that I hated it more than <laughs> the last job. Um, <laughs> so it got me thinking, you know, what what is going to make me happy ultimately? So I actually, um, the first thing I set up was, sort of consultancy business it was actually like private investigation work so a little bit of a step down from the relatively respected legal career into essentially just a job that or a job I created for myself that got me out of that situation and then it was while I kind of had a bit more time when I was trying to build that business that I spotted an opportunity which was really um, online training about cybersecurity. it's what it was in a nutshell I spotted an opportunity really to try and do something in that marketplace that other people weren't doing. So it was, it was quite an organic journey. It happened quite naturally, truth be told. And I very quickly maneuvered into that, pivoted into that as an opportunity. And then, yeah, the rest is sort of history. So it was, a, yeah, slightly strange yeah. career choices.
0: Well, the best, best business is never, you know, are linear paths where, you know, I studied business and then I had this business plan. I mean, very rare. So that's fantastic. The company was called The Defense Works. Yeah. Describe true. for someone who knows nothing about cyber. Security, what the company's business model was.
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, cybersecurity is a super complex area for most people, myself included. But what we did um, on the on the bottle was we helped train employees about some of the obvious risks that are out there. So things like phishing emails, we've all had them, you know, the weird text messages you get sometimes, even just like if your password's breached in a data breach. So how can an employer, how can employee stay safe against those threats? So we would work B2B, we would get paid a subscription um, or we worked on a subscription model, we would get paid on a subscription basis by the business to provide that training, which was delivered online, obviously, as sort of a SaaS model. Um, and yeah, that was that's that's what we did.
0: Fantastic. So these were videos were they sort of Kind of like a Netflix model where you can all you can eat
1: anytime on demand, or were they? Were it was it like an online course? Tell me how the delivery was. Yeah, sure. Delivery wise, it varied depending on the client. You had some clients who were very like kind of compliance focused, just wanted to do a big hit of training and get it ticked off and out of the way. You had other clients who were really passionate about trying to make sure they're organization was safe and they wanted it to almost be like drip fed so typically and how we recommended it was we drip feed that training to the employees on a monthly basis um and yeah it'd be like a short kind of five ten minute bit of training to, to an employee monthly bi monthly um but but by the same token if a client wanted to get access and have a sort of netflix on demand system they they could do that as well but typically it worked from a from an actual behavioral change point of view which is the whole point of the business, really. It worked much better. It was sort of short, sharp, sharp uh, intervals, really.
0: Got it. And what was your churn rate on a... I mean, did you did you measure churn on a customer uh, basis or on a revenue basis? On a customer basis. On a customer. So what was, like, what was your typical churn rate? If you had 100 customers going into a month, how many would churn?
1: Very few. So we... We were lucky, ours was less than, we had a less than 2% churn rate. Um, per month or per year? Per year. Wow. Um, but Why did they was, stay? Well, I think we were, we were one of the providers. So it was a relatively new market and the providers that are in the marketplace were very well-established. And so we were one of only a handful of small providers. So we were, truth be told, doing the things that those big providers couldn't do or they couldn't justify doing. So, um, you know, your big provider, it was typically a bit of a turnkey solution. So you'd pay, you might have a customer support manager, but really they don't help you do a great deal. Whereas with us, you would get a customer support manager who would literally hold your hand through the process, they'd set it up for you. So taking a bit of that, pain away which was a barrier to entry typically for a lot of these clients so we'd we'd do that um on the basis that we could because we were obviously a much smaller operation as we scaled that was becoming harder and that was definitely one of the challenges that we we're sort of starting to face because you know the, the cracks were starting to show a little bit in terms of have we got enough staff to really have this attention to detail um but but yeah we we played heavily upon Personal relationships to make sure that didn't happen. Like I would frequently check in with clients, um, you know, as the sort of founder and, and you know, try and try and keep people happy, really, yeah, in the shortest way. So we were quite as while it was a SaaS business, we were quite people centric, not in terms of like massively draining on hours, but just in terms of making sure we checked in regularly. Even I would check in maybe you know, every six months, just so they had a a proper point of contact. And they really genuinely would reach out if there's a problem. So we'd see a problem a mile away and could fix it. And that was kind of how we worked. And how you kept the churn down.
0: I mean, the very high touch model, founder calling, you know, very intense sort of onboarding and customer success, Uh, obviously great, to, for a lowering churn, uh, it can limit your growth rate though. So kind of, did, did you experience, like what was the growth rate on a, a year over year sort of turnover as sure. you grew?
1: Yeah, so we were doubling turnover year on year. Um, wow. Which clearly, <laughs> clearly that thesis goes out the window. It was not, yeah. not well, holding you guys back. Uh, yeah, but do you know what? It's easier in those early years. So, you know, being perfectly candid, Doubling your yearly revenue in year one is largely easy enough. Year two obviously gets a bit tricky. And year three gets a bit tricky. Now we were getting to the point where the extra hours we were taking didn't always tally up with clients. so we were you know we might have had a client who was paying us, I don't know, say $2,000 dollars a year um, and they might be like calling up every day. <laughs> With a problem and now you you can't keep those clients on obviously you're going to cause yourself no end of problems but you you know invariably we'd have clients who are paying fifty thousand dollars a year who would never call so it was kind of a strange thing and we we started very very small i should add like our first paying client was uh was twenty dollars a month so that was before i had a hired i had any idea what i was doing in business um, any idea of how scalable it was or wasn't going to be, um, I was I was really really naive going into the business in terms of business models in terms of uh, like exit strategies, um, but I I, I just kind of learned on on the way really, um, so yeah so it, it was quite interesting to see how labour intensive those those Clients were at that lower end of the scale versus the ones that are obviously much more valuable to you. And actually, the drain from them was probably significantly less than, than the smaller ones.
0: You talk about learning, and I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about this because you did not come from a business background. You're a police officer at the age of 18. Yep. And so, you know, you would have had to learn all this the hard yeah. way. This was not through academic or, you know, through working for Microsoft for 10 years or something like that. Yeah. What did you find, and our guests, our listeners really appreciate the kind of tactical stuff. Did you find that there was a specific book, podcast, um, course, you know, some sort of resource that, that you found to be really helpful in, in helping you figure out your business model?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the thing that I found the most useful was actually the network of people I had around me. So I joined an accelerator program in the UK. It was run by one of the banks. Now, actually, the course content was quite flawed. It was very high level. It was kind of a bit too, in my personal opinion, aspirational. It wasn't very practical. And I really struggled with that. But what I what I found really useful was you joined a, as a cohort of people and you you, you had people who were sat in the same boat as you are, or, or in my case, because I was day one was my first day in business. I was sat with people who were in, in there at year one or year two. So actually I could tap into their knowledge quite a lot. And, uh, and that, that was immensely helpful. Did um, they take that, a piece of equity? No, no, just, um, just literally, you know, kind of building friendships and taking time out of each other's day to kind of sit down and, and brainstorm and, and work on each other's businesses. And, I probably offered not a lot of value to them um, compared to what they could offer to me. But if you ask for a favor, people will more than often say yes um, yeah. and, and people will help you out. And I, and I do it now, you know, I spend a, a disproportionate amount of my time now helping people out because that people did to me. So it's kind of like a bit of a give back almost.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Did you? How did you finance the growth of the defense works? I mean, did you bring in any investors, or did you maintain a
1: hundred percent ownership? Uh, so it was um, completely bootstrapped. So what's quite what was quite interesting about my startup was I, I was so naive. I didn't really get investment. I hadn't done loads of thought into it when I first started. I literally just wanted to start quite a simple service-based business to create my own job, essentially. And then it was only when I started kind of getting into it, I started to see those opportunities. And that's when I saw the pivot opportunity and I pivoted into um, what, what became the defense works. Um, and yeah, it, it, that that in itself was quite an organic thing. So for me, I'd not really ever understood why I'd want investment at the time. Obviously I do now, Um and, and it took me a while to really get a grasp of what investment would I even need? Like what's an angel, what's a VC, all that sort of really basic stuff. To be honest, I was so, so naive to, um, so to the point where I actually went to an angel investor um, locally to to me, sat down with him to pitch my idea. Cause it was just an idea at the stage at that stage. Uh, and, and I wanted 200,000 pounds investment. And he, he literally laughed in my face um, and, <laughs> And and it wasn't in a rude way. It was like you do not know what you're asking for. Clearly, because I couldn't back it up. I hadn't done, you know, I hadn't done all that sort of basic due diligence and groundwork that you need to do to even ask for investment. But for me, it was almost like one of the best lessons because the sort of feedback I got from him, albeit very very minor, made me relook at what I was doing. I actually refocused my energy away from trying to get investment, which I clearly. Didn't understand and wasn't very good at um, to essentially building the platform. So my theory was I needed two hundred thousand pounds to build this platform. Now what I ended up doing was following that meeting where I got laughed at was I found some open source software, which obviously open source by the nature is free to use, and I could use that to build really the software that I was planning on building from scratch, and it kind of. Brings me back to my whole thing with with a lot of tech businesses. They can at least get an MVP out the door with what's out there already. And I naively thought I had to build from scratch to have my own proprietary tech, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I took a piece of software that was super scalable, super stable, had been used around the world in every country come what may, um, and I could just build on that. And so then all of a sudden uh, I was able to kind of refocus my energy rather than I'm trying to get investment. i actually just building this platform to be okay. It wasn't perfect. I always I always wanted to build it myself and do it properly, but I thought, well, I, I can get to where I need to be with that initially. And so that's what I did. I just doubled down into that.
0: Makes total sense. MVP for folks listening may not have heard that expression, minimum viable product. What was the LMS, I'm assuming some sort of off the shelf LMS you were using on the yeah, back yeah. end? Was, what was the says, name of the
1: LMS? Moodle, um, Moodle. M- okay, yeah, M W O D L A, and it, so it's a platform typically used by universities, colleges all around the world. It's like community-backed platform, so people are developing it, upgrading it all the time. Um, yeah, that, and I couldn't quite believe it when I found it actually how. how how much scope there was to even just use that platform alone because i was literally going to plan on building all this and and i had a built a version that was way worse than than what that was the drawbacks to moodle were while it was feature heavy it looked atrocious so like the actual ui of it was was really really bad so i had to do a bit of work to try and get that to an acceptable level it was never great um, but get it to an acceptable level by a, by a stroke of luck, found one of the big competitors had replied to a forum question, um, but hadn't taken out their signature. So they'd replied to a forum email on via their email, which included the footer, which then gave away where they worked at, which gave me the confidence to say, oh, if they're using this, then then my little rubbish startup can definitely use this. Oh, a little smoke because I was really worried that, oh, no, I can't use this open source software. I'm going to get found out. And then, yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh, bingo. If one of the big boys are using it, it's fair game. Did,
0: did you ever, like, how what was the size of the the, the, the typical customer that you worked with? I mean, how, how big a company were you working
1: with? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd say t- our typical client was around 100 to 500 employees. Um, but like our largest client was around five, six thousand employees. And did um, they
0: did you have to jump through compliance hoops and and did they question Moodle as a back end LMS
1: for the big Yeah? Absolutely did. And and that was why actually that was a really good move in the end, because rather than this kind of hokey system that we developed ourselves or I'd outsourced and, and didn't really have a proper understanding of, we had all that information there ready to go. I was able to actually take on a essentially an outsourced CTO really quickly because he was a Moodle expert. So it, it made that process way, way, way easier than having had my own system.
0: Love this. Love this. Awesome. This is great for a lot of people who want to build a piece of software, it's always going to yeah. be a lot faster and cheaper if there's something
1: <laughs> close the, to what you want. <laughs> Exactly and particularly tech, like that almost certainly is. I, I speak to founders all the time and I'm yet to see many unique ideas. At least, at least a version or an MVP isn't kind of nearly there. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you had a team of of
0: customer success people that were onboarding, training people to use the yep. videos, and yep. then probably some Like, how many employees did you have on on full time?
1: Uh, at, at the biggest, we were eight. So we we're a really small team. Um, when we acquired, I think we were seven, maybe seven. Um, so, yeah, how, how it typically worked, I, I was, you know, head of the business. We had a small customer success team of two people who were largely, um, they, they were kind of the customer success, but a little bit of a jack-of-all trade role as well. Mm-hmm. They, they'd help out with, you know, if we need a bit of blogging doing or we needed some, um, you know, or social media doing, whatever it might be, they'd kind of jump in. They'd also help with some of the training content. We had two animators at that time. Um, so two full-time animators, and we had, and then, and then the remainder were sales roles. And then we also outsourced to like obviously some key. We had an outsourced CTO because we couldn't really justify the expense of having one full-time. And um, we had another out, uh, sort of an outsourced couple of cre- like content creators for the training. So we'd work with some BBC comedy writers to help us make some comedy sketches and uh, hmm. just to diver- diversify our our product um, a little bit. But-
0: I mean, you—you you were a former police officer, former lawyer, solicitor, so you clearly knew security. Were you ever tempted to be the voice of the videos versus hiring animators?
1: No. Uh, so, in true bootstrap fashion, I, my wife was the VO; she was the voiceover for the training in those early stages. So. Obviously, I used her because she didn't charge me anything. Um, but those early days of the training like, was a complete in-house job. It was my wife doing the, the voiceover. I was using um, some e-learning authoring software called uh, Articulate Storyline, which is not wildly expensive. It's about $1,000 uh, a year. But then we were making like these animated videos prior to obviously being able to afford to hire proper animators. We were making these animated videos with a tool called VideoScribe, which is kind of like the whiteboard style animation, mm-hmm. um, which was like $70 a year or something like that. So we really weren't doing anything like w- particularly expensive. You know, we got, we got a, a decent microphone um, for I think about 100 quid, and we had those licenses. So actually, like the cost of it was pretty minimal, and we deliberately kept it that way because we hadn't got any money in the bank to do anything else with. If I'd have had investment, I would have obviously spent bigger, gone bigger quicker. Um, but but we were kind of just learning as we went and I was making the content. I was writing it, I was researching it, writing it. Um, my, my wife was voiceovering it. I was editing it. And then I was doing these animated videos as well. So uh, until we could get to that point where it was, you know, worthwhile and sustainable to, to hire, um, it, was a, it was a slog. It was a real slog. Yeah.
0: Amazing. I love the bootstrap uh, and scrappiness of it. I have here in my notes, the Defense Works was started in 2016 and you sold it in 2020. Yep, correct. Just four years. It's That's incredible. It does beg the question what triggered you to want to sell it after just four years? What was there a triggering event of some sort?
1: Yeah, um, I hadn't really planned for the sale. Um, And if I had, I'd have done some things differently. We can probably talk about that in a moment. Um, But it came out of the blue. So, one thing I had done very, very deliberately was. I knew there was an opportunity in the marketplace because I could see the big players. So bear in mind, the big players in my marketplace, they turn over like, well, one of them had just been valued at a billion dollars and another one turned over, over a billion dollars. So I was like, my business cannot compete long-term with that. So we are, we either need to out innovate or we need to hopefully get almost like acquired early. Um, so we made a very deliberate play. We had, we originally weren't called the defense works and we had a very different brand and we were called the business fraud prevention partnership which was one of the world's worst business names um (laughs) highly highly forgettable again i just had a mate do the logo that sort of usual stuff and we recognized actually the gap in our uh, marketplace was to make training that was different because all the stuff that was out in the marketplace was the same it was you know cookie cutter stuff so actually we need to stand out so we rebranded to the defense works we went from like a very kind of forgettable blue to this bright yellow we doubled down on the styles of training that we were delivering so we had the kind of stuff that we kind of made in-house which wasn't very good and we then hired the animators so we could make some cool kind of cartoon animations we then outsourced to a Couple of people I knew from from years back when I used to do some voluntary work at a radio station who'd gone into making comedy sketches on YouTube. So I just rang them and said, "Hey guys, can can you make me some comedy sketches about cybersecurity?" Um, and so so they did. But they at that time were also writing some BBC comedy writing stuff. So we kind of started diversifying that content really really quickly. And one of the things that I made a very, very deliberate play to do was to try and get noticed. So I knew uh, one of the big competitors that was valued at a billion dollars was acquiring smaller content creators. Um, and I thought, well, you know, we we at least want to be on the radar for that. So what we did was um, we, we had a platform. There was a platform, or there's a platform called Gartner Peer Insights. So it's one of the review platforms that a lot of people will use to uh, identify good cybersecurity training. So we made a real plan. Uh, it was a six-month strategy where literally we did everything we possibly could to get every single one of our clients to leave us not just a review, but a fantastic review. And so then what we happened because we had those really close relationships within the space of it wasn't even six months in the end, within the space of three months, we went from being a nobody on this platform to having over like 150 reviews. And it happened overnight near enough. So all of a sudden, the big players, in my view, must have looked at that and said, who the hell are these guys and where have <laughs> they where have they come from What was the uh, name of the platform you said it quickly but I didn't it get it was uh, Gartner Peer Insights So Gartner, similar, okay. from the Gartner group yeah 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 exactly so similar to uh, you know uh, G2 and all that sort of stuff Yeah um, yeah but, So yeah we just smashed these reviews over that short period of time um and and it really helped us get noticed I think
0: Yeah I think I think a lot of people listening to this would be like I get reviews are important, but how did you convince your customers who are busy? They ask things that you don't want to spend that relationship equity you have with them yeah. for a review. So, what were the what were the most impactful tactics
1: you tried to get them to do a review? Sure. So we did we did a basically an email marketing campaign to start with. So obviously that's the lightest touch we could do, and then we literally just followed up on every single one of those. So it. There's an email, market. I think there's probably three emails in the chain. So the usual kind of email marketing. So the first one, just politely asking, second one, a bit short, the third one, you know, we really need your help. And then anyone who didn't, then customer support manager would reach out to them. And then if anyone didn't after that, I would reach out to them. So <laughs>
0: you personally would reach out. Yeah, to them. yeah. So yeah. that's five touches, three emails, one for the yeah. customer success
1: and, and one it, phone call from Eddie. <laughs> well, it was all really kind of friendly and light touch. It was deliberately like not you know i think with this sort of stuff particularly because you are saying like hey can you do me a favor you've yeah. got to be so personable and friendly with them and and we did have some really good relationships with the client so we could kind of leverage that a little bit whereas had, had we have not have had that heavy um sort of uh man hours that we spoke about at the start of the podcast sure. we didn't nev- we'd have never been able to do that we'd have probably got yeah, you know, 10 reviews rather than 150. So the 150, what proportion
0: of your customers ended up giving you a review? Probably I think about
1: 75%.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Good for you. Yeah. So where does it go from there? So, so you're doing you're you're on the Gartner Pure insights. Cause you're like, I want to get up on the radar of these yeah. billion dollar folks who are acquiring companies. You get the reviews. They're like, okay, who is this guy? You know, who is this company?
1: And and did like what was the next step? Well, I I guess we did that, and I didn't fully appreciate whether that would have an impact or or not. I thought it, you know seemed like a sensible idea at the time. Literally, I was just working away one day, and I got I got a message on LinkedIn uh, from one of the big players to say, "Are you interested in collaborating?" And, and within that same week, um, also got approached by another one of the big. Um, competitors to, to similar sort of approach, but, but about maybe licensing some of our content. So I can, I can relatively confident, confidently say that that was linked to that because literally in a week, two of the Mm. biggest competitors have reached out and want to talk to us all of a sudden.
0: Were you reading between the lines when they used words like collaboration? Like, did you think that was code for acquisition or did you genuinely think, well, they might want to license our content?
1: I knew that it could include like the the range of opportunities there could include an acquisition. Um I honestly thought we were too small, uh too niche, perhaps even because some of our content was kind of like very like British humor and things like that. Um so I, I probably didn't get my hopes up. Um your mind races away with you a little mm. bit when mm. when suddenly you start speaking to some companies. Um but yeah, I think I was I was aware that. That acquisition could be on the cards, and um, but equally, that I was aware, you know, we had to play it carefully because I I certainly felt like I didn't want to show them all the crown jewels uh, because that could leave us really exposed. So there was a real balance. It was really it was a real difficult challenge to try and know how much to show and wh- how much do I tell them, and and uh, you feel very vulnerable going through. That. I'm sure. When a lot you say of you're getting-
0: Yeah. When you say crown jewels, I mean, as a lay person, I know nothing about this, but I'm thinking, well, there's just some animated videos. Like, What's so proprietary about that? No, What did you think was so proprietary or the crown jewels, as
1: you say? I think probably twofold, really. Probably the kind of approach that we had, we'd, we'd kind of got quite formulaic in the way that we'd design stuff that seemed to be working, um, which wasn't rocket science by any stretch, and you know, someone else could have devised something. So you so say, yeah, not there's nothing, you know, there's no IP there as such in terms of like some really clever way of doing anything. But probably even my staff. So I remember they flew over to, to have a conversation and at that point we hadn't agreed any kind of numbers or anything. Um they wanted they just wanted to kind of still explore the opportunity. And they wanted to meet the staff and I was like, no. Because it's not, for me, it wasn't worth upsetting my staff on something that might have happen because I didn't want them to get too jittery. Because we were such a small team, remember? Like, it was already a bit weird that there were some Americans coming to come and have a chat with me. So I wanted to make sure it kind of was a little bit guarded. Now that might have looked a bit weird, I don't know, um, to the Americans, but it was just the way I decided to play at the time because I just, I'd, I'd worked so hard to get to that stage. I didn't want to, you know, if they walked away from the deal, be left with some staff who were thinking, he's just trying to sell the business here. Cause that, cause that actually wasn't my intention. Um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of a really del- delicate balance at the time. How did you explain it to them, your staff? Uh, well, I was honest. And I said, we've got an American company. They really like what we've done. I think they've seen all our reviews that we've been hammering for the last six months. <laughs> um, they're going to come and they're on about collaborating at the time. You know, I said I don't know what the collaboration looks like. Maybe it will be licensing some of our content because we'd already had that discussion with one of the other big players, um, and and that those conversations were going along at the same time. Actually, um, I said, but who knows what it might be? Um, yeah, so I was kind of pretty open, but I equally said, you know, I don't really want to involve. Well, I didn't say I don't want to involved, but I, I said to the American um, uh, team that were coming over, like I don't I don't really want to get my team too involved because. I just think it's, it's going to cause more problems than it's worth unless it's going to go ahead.
0: Got it. And so it sounds like after you did the big blitz for reviews, you had two independent companies that sort of reached out. Um, you mentioned one came to see you. What was the, what happened to the other?
1: Uh, so they they were purely interested in licensing the content. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't want to acquire. Um, I sort of mentioned, well, you know there's possibly other acquisition musings going on and the likes um but they were they were quite happy just with the idea of this um this licensing of the content so i i kind of was kind of keeping the options open really at the time because I, I didn't know which way it was going to go so on the on the worst case scenario if the acquisition had have fallen through i had a relatively lucrative licensing offer that i could have taken I might not have done because there was still a lot of analysis to be done on the real value of that or would it cannibalize my business that sort of thing um but but yeah it was it was I guess a nice problem to have
0: yeah the company that flew over from the United States that was Proofpoint the ultimate acquirer. okay so the company's called Proofpoint big uh, it's your I think it's a billion dollar valuation or something like that like a, a big big company what was that first
1: meeting like how would you describe it actually not that bad it was re- really relaxed. Um, yeah, it, it, was a, it was really relaxed. I, I was surprised. I, I was probably you know, naturally quite nervous. Um, I'd been involved in big negotiations from my limited time at the law firm, which was probably some of the, the benefits of having worked there. I think if i had gone being in the police into that environment, I'd have struggled. Um, but it, it was actually really relaxed, and it was, it was a really open dialogue around the state of the business, like how we do what we do, what's what do the numbers look like? Um, it wasn't at all as kind of I don't know, like as ruthless as I maybe would have envisaged that sort of a scenario being. It was actually a really amicable and quite a pleasant time in a <laughs> in a weird way. Obviously nervous and I was sweating quite a lot, but it was it was a yeah it was, it, there were probably a testament to the people that flew over, but it was, uh, yeah, it, was a, it was an enjoyable process. At
0: what point did you sign a non-disclosure agreement?
1: Oh, uh, early. Yeah. Really early. Before like, they flew over? Oh yeah. 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 Way, way before. Like literally day one. Um, just as a, a bit of a barrier to, for what, for what they are worth to just get a bit of a common sense check in terms of that. I'm not, same things I shouldn't be doing you know you, you just got to sure. be careful yeah
0: yeah yeah for sure and so when did the spectre of of valuation come up was it in that first meeting that they started um, to ask about
1: we'd kind of had some preliminary conversations around that uh, mm-hmm. prior to them coming across and then it it was a, a definitely a moving a moving target all the time um it wasn't until right towards the end really that 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 was finalized for us so how did they raise it uh, it was from memory, I think it was just almost like a breakdown to say, this is what we think it's worth based on these reasons. Do you agree? You know, no, obviously I don't. And, and what was their rationale? <laughs> what, what, what did uh, they think it was worth and what, what was their justification for that? The, the main rationale and quite common really considering it as a SaaS subscription model was 10X revenue. Um, That's what they thought it was worth? Yeah, they not, not initially. 10x. Not initially. Yeah, not initially. Oh, what did
0: they think in the beginning? Like, what was their original? Yeah, I'd have
1: to go back and look at the numbers, but but not not ten x. Um, I think I don't know. Maybe it was like seven x. I'd, I'd have to check. Truth be told. Um, okay. but it was. We weren't. We weren't aligned for sure. And what did you think it was worth? Honestly, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> truthfully, <laughs> truthfully, I didn't because I, you know, I. I I, I had a, I didn't know anyone else who'd sold a business at that stage, so I was kind of like, I guess, desperately reading books, listening to podcasts, trying to trying to gauge um, a bit of what the valuation could or should be. You know, I, me and my wife were kind of going, well, is it this or is it this? It could be anywhere between the two. Who knows? Um, and it kind of always comes back down to what is someone willing to pay, and what are you willing to accept, and and that. You know, did you have I'm, a
0: number in mind that you would be willing to
1: accept? Yeah, I I, I think I did, um, and then it, it I mean ultimately it came down to for me it was like this is a, a life changing amount of money. You know, I, it's too good an offer to to refuse ultimately.
0: Did so the number you had in mind? Did you have that before or after they threw out the idea
1: of potentially seven times revenue? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I definitely I'm definitely not one of those founders who said, I'm gonna sell for 50 million dollars. Right. I, I, I I and I, I totally understand why people do that. It's just that I, I think for for example, for me in that circumstance, if that had been my mindset when I started my business, then I would have missed a huge opportunity there. Um I mean, yeah. I, the, the counter argument that is I'd have carried on building it and who knows what I might have then sold it for. But for me, no, I was I was really open-minded as to the valuation. I knew what it I knew what it was worth. I knew what we could get to in the next year and what I projected for, you know, the year after that. And and I also knew that they weren't ridiculous numbers. As in I hadn't made them up. They weren't they weren't the numbers that you make up in year one of your business. They were like yeah. these were justified reasonable numbers that I can say, yeah, I think we're going to hit that next year and the year after. So I, I was kind of looking at that and saying, well, what they're offering me, when am I going to realize that value from the business? Well, actually it's going to take me another two, three, four, five years, whatever it might have been. Eddie, um, how profitable was the business, like on a percentage basis? Ooh, I would have to check. We we, we could have been very, very profitable, but we were just reinvesting everything we were making to grow. So we were certainly, we were, we were bootstrapped, but we were self-investing effectively. Um, Like I was still taking absolute minimal salary out um, because because I just was like, at the time I said to my missus, I was like, we don't need to take this out. So let's just keep it in and keep scaling. Um, So, but that was more of a conscious choice. So I think uh, probably not very profitable um, without me looking at the numbers again. However, that was through choice because we were continually investing in, you know, we were doing some custom development. We were hiring, you know, the usual sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. Help me get underneath something because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand because I think a lot of people listening to this would, would hear the number seven times revenue and they'd be like, that is an enormous valuation. Now, of course you're in a SaaS business. So they do obviously get very high multiples, but yeah, but anybody who owns any kind of business that's that's not in sort of software, like a dental practice or a car dealership or plumbing company, they're hearing seven times, and they're like, where do I sign immediately? Yeah. Right? So I guess I'm curious, uh, you know, admittedly in your own admission, you hadn't really done a lot of work to understand what the value is. So I'm just trying to understand what gave you the the confidence to push back on seven and say, no, it's got to be more.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, stupidity um, and <laughs> naivety. No, I think, do you know what it was? It was genuinely like I knew where we'd gone from and I knew like, look, without being like arrogant, I was like, I built that from nothing to here. I'm pretty confident off these relatively humble projections that in a year two year three year we're going to get there so actually that gave me a lot of confidence to be able to say yeah that's not enough because you know my track record of three four years says I've done that why can I not do that and they they weren't like I said earlier they weren't sort of finger in the air projections they were pretty solid tangible sensible projections based off You know X Y Z, Um, whether it was mark, you know whether it was up in our market and spend, whether it was diversifying into a new market. Um, So, so I think because I'd, I'd not gone like silly and said, oh, in you know in two years time we're going to be fifty million turnover business. It was was quite a, a steady, um, approach to it that I could kind of confidently say, yeah, I don't think that is enough of a valuation for for me, and also. I, sort of, I think one of the things I even said in part of the negotiation was like, I, I, I've done quite well to grow it from, from nothing as a bootstrap business to this. And obviously, I, I had 100% equity. I also can't sell myself too cheap here because who says I'm going to be able to do that again? You know, don't get me wrong. I'll be better placed to try and do it again. I've got experience that I didn't have before but, but maybe not. So it'd be naive of me and very arrogant of me to say, I could definitely do it again. So therefore it's like the
0: professional athlete who, you know, may have four good earning years, right? Yeah, when those yeah. are done, you're like, I got to monetize
1: these. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like, so, yeah. so it's kind of like, do I, do I want to give up this, which I know is doing well to start something else? So you're going to have to pay me enough to give this up because this is doing all right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, he, you know, we, we we haven't known each other long, but you seem like a really affable, chill guy who I would love to have a beer with. And I, I'd imagine that for the acquirer, you described them, you were anticipating this sort of very intense yeah. negotiation. And, and in your own admission, it was like, hey, yeah, it was pretty good. Like they, they were they were good people and they, they made it easy and comfortable, whatever. I guess the, where I'm going with this question is, how do you say no? How did you say no, that's not
1: enough without coming off like a prick? Yeah. Really good question. I, do you know what I think just being honest? Cause I think what I, what I'd said from day one was like, if you ask me a question, I'll give you an honest answer. Um, and so then when they when they said, "Like, is this in the is this in the ballpark?" Sorry, no, it's not. Um, it was, you know, like those negotiations are going to be tough. Doesn't matter what level, whether you're negotiating a thousand pound or five hundred million pounds, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you've still got to be direct about it. And if they're not going to meet that valuation you've got in your mind, you're going to have to walk away. Now, don't get me wrong. Me and my wife had some pretty Scary conversations of like, yeah, if you say no to that <laughs> and then they walk away, you're, you're, you're effectively gambling a figure there that you might never get offered again. But, but then if that figure is low enough that you think, well, it doesn't matter because I'm pretty confident, give me a year, I'm going to be turning over X, Y and Z and working towards this goal, then, then I think that, that was, I was in quite a lucky position. I, I think I was relatively empowered by the fact I hadn't gone looking for the sale. Because in my mind, if they had never come along, I'd still been happily building my business. So in my mind, I was like, it needs to be a good enough offer for me to get out. Otherwise, why would I? Because I'm quite happy. I'm still in the infancy of the business, actually. So it's got to be a good enough offer to convince me to get out because um, otherwise I'm happy playing. I'm still, I've still got the passion. I'm still young enough. I've still got the energy to build this into whatever I want it to be.
0: How did it, did it go with your wife? I'm thinking in particular, did it cause uh, a strain on your relationship? It sounds like in in your situation, she was more like, Hey, that's a lot of money. And, and you were like, <laughs> yeah, but I can get it elsewhere. Like, did that actually joking aside cause friction with your
1: no no, to be honest no um i've been very 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 lucky from day one my wife has been exceptionally supportive so if you think like when i met my wife i was a cop Um, (laughs) then you're a lawyer (laughs) yeah i was just about to become a lawyer so she was thinking cool he's going to become a lawyer that's great he'll be able to provide um (laughs) and then and then i say literally on day one of starting it this is a mistake i fucking hate it um i and basically that i want to quit so i literally qualify as a lawyer because i had to you have to do two years as a trainee in the uk and then you qualify so within two months of qualifying i'd quit so i'd literally just got the benefit of that pay rise that you get and i'd quit to start to be a private investigator and then literally i just kind of got that off the ground really um you know probably i think in that year doing like well not even a full year It was probably six nine months but in that year i probably was on target to maybe do Forty thousand pounds, something, nothing, nothing crazy, um, but but just having started to kind of make a bit of progress with that. One morning, I say to her, "Yeah, about that business I've just started, I want to, I want to pivot into this thing I've got no knowledge about whatsoever." Um, but she was amazingly supportive, and uh, and I think she's always maybe naively uh, trusted my judgment on stuff like that. Um, and it was actually a really interesting time. We was in hospital with. Our newborn at the time uh, when these negotiations were going on. And it was almost like we were obviously dealing with like relatively serious things in hospital, nothing too crazy, but but enough to to be concerned. Sure. Um, And, but having these conversations about, oh, this, we might sell a business. But it was almost like a nice distraction, a nice tonic from the reality of what we were in.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So where does it go from there? So they throw at seven. You say not going to do it. Uh, where it, w- did they go back to the US? Did they fly home. Did you guys keep talking? What was the
1: yeah yeah? So there? we we um, the conversation rolled on for a number of months. Yeah, uh, quite a long period of time. Um, many many times in that in that period, I thought this is dead and buried, and kind of had uh, accepted that in many respects, and was looking at. And starting to weigh up that licensing opportunity obviously still trying to build the business in the meantime um, and then it, it kind of would just keep coming back up every now and then and there'd be a, there'd be another email just randomly and I'd, obviously it was American time zone and I'm in the UK so I'd wake up and there'd just be a, a random email about it and then oh all right okay so we are still talking so it's a bit a bit I'm sure you've heard this analogy before but a bit like dating uh, really in many respects and then yeah, it kind of it, it just it rumbled on to the point where it kind of came to a natural conclusion of them saying, right, we're in a position now to make a proper offer. Here's the offer. I'm pretty sure I said, "Is that the final offer?" Like kind of thing, and they were like, "Yes, yeah, shut, shut up, stop asking." <laughs> um, and 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 even then, though, even from that point of like potentially agreeing a price, you know, I. I've been involved in acquisitions very lightly in my old job as a lawyer and I knew full well, they could all fall apart. And, and on top of that, bear in mind this was May, 2020. So COVID was really wow. just, was really just coming. So actually um, credit to the CEO of that company did ring me and say like, you know, I want you to have some comfort that was still going ahead and don't be worried by the world events and things. Um, so again, it goes to show you're dealing with decent people and, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and it, it, it was what was their final offer? Um, what do you mean, sorry? Uh, what was oh, their final it, 10x, offer? 10x, on multiple yeah, revenue, ten x, yeah, ten x revenue, fantastic. Yeah, just amazing. well, actually, said, actually, that's a really interesting ten x of subscription revenue. So we had we had some other revenue that wasn't subscription based. Um, so actually, that was probably a happy middle ground, actually.
0: Okay, so 10X of your subscription revenue. And then the other revenue, what, what kind of revenue was non-subscription? Were you doing like consulting?
1: Uh, yeah, like a, a bit like, for example, I don't know, if, if a client came in and wanted some content customized specifically to them, it's going to be a one-off fee that you're not got it. you know. What did the, they give you on the one-off revenue
0: and the multiple of revenue?
1: Well, we didn't really, We just because it was so negligible.
0: Okay, got it. Got it. So it was 10X subscription revenue and you just kind of yeah. threw in the other stuff. Got it. If that makes Cause sense. Cause
1: it, it was negligible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. The, the, how did they structure it? Were you, were you paid cash or was it like a percentage of cash and then an earnout, or did you care, get some equity? Like how did you, how did the actual structure look?
1: Yeah. So it was, um, it was cash with an earnout, and the earnout out in, in a mixture of shares and cash basically.
0: Got it. The earnout was in addition to the 10X revenue or was that part of the 10X revenue?
1: Uh, part of. Got it.
0: And do you, are you able to share sort of roughly proportions of like upfront versus at risk in an earnout?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think how much I can say. Yeah. I mean, so I think it was like, it was pretty much most upfront with some earnout. Got it. Got it.
0: Yeah. And the shares that you got, I'm not familiar,
1: is is Proofpoint a publicly traded company or are they private? Uh, they they were publicly when uh, my company was acquired, but they're now back private. Oh, interesting. So how does that
0: work in terms of your shares in Proofpoint? Do you have a holdback? Do you have to hold them for a period of time or, or can so you sell them?
1: Essentially, um well, I, to be honest, I don't actually know how much I can say about that. I don't know. Okay. The, okay. Of, no, of that's fine. Is, is public or not?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally appreciate that. I, it, you know, one of the things we're we're always uh, telling our listeners to be mindful of is if you're going to take equity, make sure you understand the liquidity options you have on that equity. 100%.
1: Yeah, and that. And so. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you have to get legal advice and and financial advice on that because you could. I hear it all the time people taking deals and you're like you've not you've not actually had a a cash exit there so it's it's largely pointless and and if you are taking shares or equity or whatever you want to be assured that you're going to be able to cash that out at some point because so yeah, many people yeah. make a mistake So you ready to do a a little lightning round of quick answers?
0: I've got a couple questions for you. uh, They just require a short answer and I won't respond. I'm just uh, going to ask you a bunch of quick questions. All right. But what was the slimiest trick you saw an acquirer try to use on you?
1: So this wasn't related to those two that acquired us. There was another company that was less of an acquisition, but it was more of a partnership, but they basically tried to belittle uh, our offering and um, take the take the mick out of some of the clients we have on our website and case studies um, as if to like downplay the quality of the business so that the partnership was more attractive. It was quite strange.
0: What was the biggest mistake you made in the process of selling your company?
1: Was probably not preparing for it earlier. So because it came out of the blue, I was... unprepared and I think if I'd have been more prepared I could have uh, had just I could have had things better lined up both in terms of helping a transition period in terms of um, making it easier for my staff uh, as well as probably preparing clients there was it was quite it all happened quite quickly and I think that was probably virtue of it coming out of the blue.
0: What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process?
1: Probably those lulls in communication. So whether it be long gaps where you're pretty sure it's off the cards and you're kind of like, oh, okay, that that's not happening anymore. Let's get back to, to, to what we were doing um, and, you know, working back on the business and then trying to almost think about re-energizing yourself you like, oh, that's not happening now. I need to get back to what I was doing and be at that same tenacity and level that I was at before.
0: In hindsight, do you think that was an intentional negotiation tactic on behalf of the acquirer to spread out the time between email
1: responses? Possibly. Um, but equally, you know, these are big businesses. They're not just talking to one potential acquisition. So it'd be so Possibly, but, you know, big businesses take a long time to do anything. <laughs> so what, what was your highest point during the exit process? It was probably the middle of the, middle of the, the day we were signing all the documents prior to signing the documents. And uh, it was mid-COVID. There was only me and my or one lawyer, the partner, because they couldn't have all the supporting staff there. I was in a, another law firm in Manchester, which was like a kind of like the rival to the one I'd left. And it had almost like come full circle for me. So I went out for lunch. The sun was shining. There's nobody in Manchester. It was absolutely peaceful, which never ever happens, obviously. Um, and I just sat and I had like, I don't know, a, a sandwich and an ice cream in the sun by myself. But it was like pure tranquility. On a day when this crazy life-changing thing was happening, and I'd kind of come full circle from this dream about becoming a lawyer. And there I am, sat in a law firm selling a business. It's like it was just weird, surreal, really surreal. Yeah. That oh, 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 and, that, and it was literally round the corner from the place where it all started. Like that the place where I had that accelerated program at the bank, I had to go past that, like literally round the corner. So it was kind of like, oh, what a weird, what a weird little journey that's been wow
0: what morsel of information do you wish you had
1: known before you started the process of selling your company i think being prepared for the distraction because it's a hell of a distraction um and i I liken it actually to when people are getting investment it becomes your full-time job so can your business weather that because you're going to have your eye off the ball for however long, even if you are still willfully working on it and gamefully employed and all of those good things, you're still going to be distracted. So can you actually weather that? And and, and may that even have a, a negative impact on the business if you're not careful, it, You know, if it doesn't go through. So, um, and, I, and I say the same, when people are getting investment, it, it can become a full-time job. So yeah, probably probably that.
0: Last question. What trophy did you buy yourself to commemorate the transaction?
1: Um, This has been a really interesting one. So we were, we obviously sold it during COVID. So we have got uh, the sort of dream house, but we're doing loads of work to it. So we're not even moved into that yet. Um, I've got like a nice car, but but actually, truth be told, my life doesn't feel that much different. I'm still living in a terrace house at the time for the time being. Um, so I don't have less financial worries, obviously, but but I don't yet feel like I've benefited from it. That's the most uh, I guess the I guess a trophy. I I bought an old church um to, to convert into a, a sort of office co-working space. Um but it's still, it's, I'm just in a very strange place because it's, it's, you know, it's only a couple of years, coming up to a couple of years. I'm not in the, the sort of the big house, you know, the dream house kind of thing. But the, the, the kind of church hasn't finished yet. I haven't really bought much stuff yet because the world's only just opened back up, really. So it's kind of, it's been a strange like limbo couple of years where I probably don't feel like I've actually sold my business yet, as daft as that sounds
0: it doesn't sound daft at all. And one of the things that we hear all the time is don't spend a penny of your money for a year after you sell yeah, Just yeah. let it sort of sit in your account. And, co- co- and so was, yeah.
1: COVID stopped me spending money. Um, yeah. In, 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 in a good way. Um, cause I think I would have probably wasted quite a lot of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Eddie, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story. Oh. Uh, I know your time is precious. So, um, we'll, we'll wrap it before we do, uh, let tell people where they can reach out to you
1: and say hi on, on social media. What's the best way for folks to get in touch? Sure. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, so find me on there, just Eddie Whittingham. Um, or you can have a look on my website, which is gofounder.com, which, um, is essentially just the platform I created, which is what I wished I'd had when I started. So my idea behind, it was purely to help people whether they're starting or growing, just have some of those kind of lessons that we spoke about right at the start of the podcast in terms of what could I have learned? That would have been a bit of a shortcut to help me get there and that community. So I mentioned it again at the start of the podcast, but that's what I found really valuable is people in a similar boat to ask a question of. So that's what I've tried to build GoFounder to be essentially.
0: That's awesome. And that was the accelerator that you had in a sort of a live uh experience you're trying to make yep. it in a virtual experience so we'll put all that in the show notes at build along with a, a, a link to your linkedin profile which i know you're active on linkedin so that's great eddie thanks for doing this no pleasure thanks a lot hope you enjoyed my conversation with eddie for complete show notes including links to everything referenced in today's episode along with definitions for some of the technical terms referenced visit the episode page which can be found at built If you know an entrepreneur who we should interview on Built to Sell Radio, please nominate them. Just go to builttosell.com slash nominate. If you're wondering how to support the show in a small way, we would love a review. Any of the big platforms have reviews and that helps new folks find us in a big way. So that's super helpful. While you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Today's show was produced by Haley Parkhill. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio and video engineering. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. My name is John Warlow. I'll be back in your earbuds next week.